0: The Lord be with you. Jesus tells a parable in which there is a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. And in death there is a chasm between the two of them. But the truth is there was a chasm between the two of them in life also. The chasm started off as a chasm of wealth. The rich man is rich and Lazarus is poor. But it goes further than that because the rich man uses his wealth to dig that chasm deeper. The rich man uses his wealth to build a gate, a gate to keep his family in and to keep Lazarus out. The rich man feasts sumptuously every single day while Lazarus is outside yearning to have just a scrap of food from that rich man's table. But the rich man doesn't invite him in. Instead, the rich man carves the chasm between them even deeper. And it says the rich man is dressed in purple and fine linen, literally the most expensive clothing that you could buy at this point in the ancient world. Lazarus doesn't seem to have much clothing at all because it says that dogs will come up and just start licking his sores, which depending on your perspective, right, could be a really sweet thing. You're like, wow, no human cares about Lazarus, but the dogs do. The dogs come and they take care of him. How beautiful is that? Or you might say, that is disgusting, right? This guy's got open wounds and the dog's just coming up and licking him. How sad is that? Now, you may have a perspective on whether or not you'd want a dog to come and lick you if you're in a really terrible spot. Lazarus doesn't get a choice. Right, Lazarus doesn't have the ability to go somewhere where the dogs aren't licking him, doesn't have a place to to cover himself up, to, to stop the dogs from licking him. But the rich man does. The rich man does have a choice whether or not to be licked by dogs. And that's both the power and the peril of wealth, is that it gives us a choice as to what we want to deal with. Don't like watching ads during your favorite show? Just pay for premium uh, streaming service, right? You don't wanna deal with cooking dinner tonight? Pay for delivery. You wanna go enjoy a nice tropical beach, but you don't wanna be bummed out by the poverty of the people who live there? You pay for an exclusive resort. And those may seem like trifling things, but the truth is money gives us the power to not have to deal with profound things as well. Two weeks ago, my wife, Annalisa and our one-year-old daughter, Sophia, went to visit a friend of Annalisa's from college who now lives in Oregon. And when they were staying in a house up there, Annalisa woke up in the middle of the night and saw a bat flying around. Annalisa's terrified because she has a good friend of the family who actually died due to rabies. So she's really worried about this and most of the time here in Butte County, she's had experiences before, you get a bat in your house, you call Pest Control Public Health, they'll come, they'll capture the bat, they'll test it to see if it has rabies. It was Labor Day weekend, she couldn't get a hold of anyone. She tried to capture the bat, but then it crawled away somewhere and she couldn't find it to get it tested. And so when she got back, she said, Ben, we need to get our baby vaccinated against rabies and and me too. And I said well, are there any side effects? And we looked it up and talked to doctors. No, praise be to God, modern medicine, no side effects from a rabies vaccine. So, you know, well, nothing wrong with it. We might as well go ahead, except turns out to get both Lisa and Sophia vaccinated for rabies would cost $6,000. Yeah. Now we've got insurance, once again, praise be to God. So hopefully, we don't know yet, hopefully insurance will cover that, but we'd still have to pay off are deductible, which is a couple thousand bucks. And when I heard this, I was like, maybe, you know, maybe we shouldn't, you know, like, were there scratches on the baby? Like, you know, Unlisa said, really? You're going to gamble with our daughter's life for a couple thousand dollars? And I said, no, definitely not. (laughs) Right, but I had a choice. I had a choice whether or not to do that. Some people don't even have that choice. For some people, $2,000 might as well be a million because they don't have it. For me and Ann-Lisa, it means that we'll have to wait a little longer to save up for some of the things we want to buy, but we can do that. That is the power of wealth, but it's also its peril because wealth gives us the power to not deal with consequences. There's a saying that any law whose penalty is a fine is a law that only applies to the poor. Because if you're rich, you just pay the fine. It doesn't matter to you. You keep on doing what you were doing before. So much so that we see time and time again in this country and around the world that people with enough wealth seem to have a whole different system of justice applied to them. And that's what we see happening in that reading from Jeremiah that was so confusing this morning. You see, what's going on is Jeremiah is imprisoned. It says it very delicately. He's confined in the courtyard of the guards in the king's palace, King Zedekiah's palace. Why is he confined there? Why is he in jail in the king's private home? Well, it's because, and if you've been following us for the past few weeks, you've heard, Jeremiah's been preaching. And Jeremiah's been preaching against King Zedekiah and all the other elites in Jerusalem. He's been preaching against them because they've fallen into idolatry. He's preaching against them because their greed has led them to oppress the very people that they're supposed to care for. And Jeremiah has been preaching that as a consequence of this injustice, God is going to bring destruction to the city of Jerusalem. And it turns out King Zedekiah doesn't want to hear that, really doesn't want like his subjects hearing this guy go on ranting about how bad a king he is. And King Zedekiah has wealth and he has power, so he has a choice to make sure no one has to listen to Jeremiah's preaching. And so he chooses to put Jeremiah in jail. The king builds a chasm between himself and God's word because he has money to do it and he doesn't want to deal with that. But here's the thing. God doesn't care how much money you have. But the Babylonian army does. And no matter how much money you have, someone can always take it away from you. And so the Babylonian army shows up, just as Jeremiah predicted, to be the deliverer of God's vengeance for the injustice that King Zedekiah has committed. The Babylonian army shows up and it surrounds Jerusalem and lays siege to it because it would like to take all that ill-gotten wealth that King Zedekiah has. And so Zedekiah finds himself in this ironic position of being at the same time trapped by the consequences of his sin while simultaneously trapping the person who tried to warn him about the consequences of his sin. But King Zedekiah, even when he looks out and he sees this army besieging him, he doesn't seem to recognize that he is maybe somehow at fault for what is happening to him. His wealth and his power have for so long shielded him from the consequences of his actions that he cannot fathom that somehow he is to blame for the destruction that is coming. And we see the very same thing happen in the parable that Jesus tells us today about the rich man. Because Jesus says, both Lazarus and the rich man die. But when the rich man wakes up, he realizes he's being tormented in the afterlife by flames. And and he looks up and, and there he sees Lazarus, that poor man he remembers from life. And the first thing that the rich man says when he sees that Lazarus is there is he says, Oh good, Lazarus can get me a drink. Seriously, the guy dies, wakes up in what we would call hell, sees that the poor beggar he used to step over every day is in what we would call paradise, and he doesn't say, oh, you know, I, I'm sorry. I clearly messed up. I I want to repent so we can make this right. He doesn't even say, why am i here and lazarus is there no he just assumes well god must be good enough that if i'm in hell at least he gave me a servant to fetch me water if abraham was a little snarkier abraham in that moment might have said you realize this is the reason why you're in hell yeah but that's not what abraham says instead abraham says sorry rich man i I can't send lazarus to fetch you water Uh, Because you see, there is a chasm between you and us. A chasm that even if we wanted to, we wouldn't be able to get to you, and no one from your side can get to us. It's a chasm that the rich man carved his whole life, that the rich man carved every time he shut his gate to Lazarus and wouldn't let him share in the food that he had in abundance. It's a chasm that the rich man carved in his life every time at a party he told the musicians to play louder so they wouldn't have to listen to Lazarus groaning outside the gate. It's a chasm that the rich man carved every time he told his kids that no matter what the scriptures say, he doesn't have to help Lazarus because Lazarus doesn't deserve help. It's a chasm that has been carved in the rich man's heart in life and now in death. So much so that, I don't know if you noticed, but the rich man never even addresses Lazarus directly. Twice he asks Abraham to send Lazarus to do an errand for him, but neither time does the rich man ever talk directly to Lazarus. It's almost as if the rich man can't fathom that Lazarus is a person worth talking to. You might also notice that while the rich man asks that Lazarus run all these errands for him, the rich man never says, hey, could I be where Lazarus is somehow? It's as if a lifetime of using his wealth to carve a chasm between him and Lazarus has made it so that the rich man can't fathom leaving hell if it means being where Lazarus is. But God says to Jeremiah, there is another way to use our wealth. While Jeremiah is locked up in the palace of the king, God says to Jeremiah, hey, your cousin's going to come and he's going to offer to sell you a field south of town. You should buy it. And sure enough, a little later, Jeremiah's cousin shows up at the king's palace, says, hey, you know, I want to talk to my cousin. He's in jail here. And the cousin says to Jeremiah, hey, I got this great field just south of town. You want to buy it? Now, I don't know if you remember, I told you earlier there was a Babylonian army besieging the town. The field that Jeremiah's cousin is trying to sell him has that Babylonian army camped on top of it, yeah? It would be like going to Kiev and being like, hey, I got this great farm. It's out on, like, eastern Ukraine's border with Russia. It's got a minor tank infestation right now, but I'm sure that'll clear up real quick. Hey, you want to buy it? I'll give you a real good price. Yeah, you'd be like, hmm, that doesn't seem like a great deal. Or, or imagine in 2018, while the campfire is still raging, someone comes to you and says, hey, I've got this really nice house in paradise. You want to buy it? I think it would be perfect for you. It's got great views, friendly neighbors. Yeah, maybe I'll I'll knock off 10% because, you know, there's a little, there's stuff going up there, but don't worry about it. Right, this is what Jeremiah's cousin is doing to Jeremiah. Hey, you want to buy this field? I know our city's about to get burned down. We're all going to be killed and dragged off into slavery, but you should buy the field from me. Jeremiah says, yes, I'll buy the field. God told me to buy the field. Jeremiah not only buys the field, he gets witnesses to watch him sign the deed. He weighs out the money, he gets it certified and notarized. He makes two copies of the deed, and he has his scribe Baruch put those copies of deeds in earthenware jars and bury them. We are still digging up earthenware jars with pieces of paper stuck in them from Jeremiah's time 2,600 years ago, right? Jeremiah wants to make sure that everyone knows he bought this land and the memory and the proof that he bought this land will survive forever. Why? Right now, all the world looks at that land and says, that land is worthless. That land is a lost cause, but Jeremiah, who's been preaching about the destruction of Jerusalem wants everyone to know that just because destruction is coming to Jerusalem, it doesn't mean God has forsaken the city. No, God is wiping the slate clean to rebuild something new and better. God has a commitment to these people, and God is making that clear by having Jeremiah invest what money he has in the place that is about to be destroyed. Jeremiah is using his money to say, This place is valuable, this place has a future. It may not be a future in my lifetime, but there will be a time when my kids or my grandkids, they will come back and they will rebuild. They will build homes and vineyards. They will raise families. And when that day comes, I want them to have this piece of land. So it means now, in this moment, when everyone sees only a worthless plot being destroyed, I am going to put my money where my mouth is and say, God loves this land. And I want the whole world to know. That's what God does for each and every one of us with Jesus. You see, God, God could have a nice big old chasm between the heavenly banquet where God resides and our mess here on earth. But God says, no, I'm going to take all my riches. I'm going to take all my power. And I am going to put it inside a human being because I want my riches to be placed in humanity in the midst of all their mess. It may look bad now, but God knows that God will work to transform this world, that God will work to transform each and every single one of us. God puts God's treasure in us. God's treasure is in Jeremiah, yes. God's treasure is in King Zedekiah, yes. God's treasure is in Lazarus. God's treasure is in the rich man. No matter who the world says is worthless or a lost cause, God says that person is precious. That person has new life coming. And that's true for each and every one of you and it's true for everyone else in this world and so the question becomes what do we do with the wealth that god gives us because each and every one of us are the rich man in this parable if you've got a door that you can close if you've got a meal that you can share, if you've got an ear that can listen, it means you have a choice. You have a choice as to whether or not to let people in or shut people out. You have a choice whether to feast sumptuously by yourself or to share a simple meal with a stranger. You have a choice to only hear the voices that will praise and flatter you or to listen to people who have hard truths to speak, truths that have both sorrow and joy within them. And if you've got money in the bank, the possibilities are endless. Imagine the ways that you can invest, that you can invest in people and in communities, in places that the world may have written off as lost causes, as worthless, but you can see as God does, that God's treasure is found in such places, and you can prove it to the world by putting your money where your mouth is. You can learn from Jeremiah that money is used to give hope and to raise people up. You can learn from the mistakes of the rich man in the parable. You can use your money not to create chasms between you and others, but to create connections, to discover in people that you would never expect that God's treasure is found there. That's what we as a congregation strive to do with the wealth that you so generously give us. In the past two months, the church council has looked at our budget And we have shifted about $20,000. We've made cuts to things like landscaping and janitorial cleaning and tech support. We've made cuts in those areas because we wanna shift that money to our staff. And I wanna explain why. One, the state of California in the past five years has said every full-time salaried employee needs a pay raise. In 2018, or 2017, the salary was $41,000. In 2023, the state of California says every salaried employee should have a minimum salary of $64,000, right? That's a $23,000 increase for each staff person. And here's the thing. It costs that much to live a good life in California, and we would like our staff to have a good life in California. But what that means is we have to make choices about how we spend our money. And so we are making a choice to say, hey, we want to shift from some of the money we spend on our facilities to that money being spent on staff. And here's why. It's not because our facilities are bad. No, in fact, our facilities do the work of creating connections and commitment to our community, right? Our facilities allow us to gather for worship. Our facilities host 12 step groups for people trying to get sober and turn their lives around. Last week, our facilities hosted safe space for people who in over 100 degree heat could not afford air conditioning and needed a space just to stay alive. Our facilities are doing God's work. But ultimately, the work we want this congregation to do is to be building connections And each and every one of the members of our staff, whether it's Luke leading worship or Danny overseeing family life or Michael running the office and overseeing all our communication, the work that all of them are doing is building connections, getting to know you. One, because you are lovely people and it's a delight to get to know you, but more importantly because we want to connect you. And to connect you we need to know you we can want to connect you to God yes but we want to connect you to where God has placed God's treasures on earth that is first and foremost in yourself we want to connect you to the gifts that God has given you but we also want to connect you to the ways in which God has placed God's treasure in all the people around you to connect you in small groups maybe with people who are in your same place in life to connect you with mentors who have gone and done who have gone and done the things that you only dream of we want to connect you with opportunities to serve so that you can meet people living on the streets we want to connect you to the rich man and we want to connect you to lazarus because on the cross God proclaims the same thing that Jeremiah proclaims when he purchases that field, which is that God's treasure is found in the very places that the world considers worthless and forsaken. And so, siblings in Christ, the question for us today is what do we do with the wealth that God has given us? Do we use it to carve chasms between us and others, or do we use it to build connections May we use it to build connections so that in this life or the next, when we are given a choice between a solitary torment or a life spent with Christ in paradise, but with all those people that we looked at askance at, we might find between us and paradise not a chasm, but a connection. Amen.